If you would, take your Bibles this morning, open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we will bridge chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. It's good to gather together and sing songs about the facts that are, that are there. Sin is broken, death is conquered, Christ is risen, and we are saved. Amen? Amen. We have been in this series now for a number of weeks, this series entitled Saved, where we are going sort of step by step through all that is involved in the application of redemption. What does it mean to be saved? And um, I have enjoyed this series thoroughly. And many of you have come to me and, and, uh, and said, thank you for doing this series. It's helped me to understand um, I have grown in this series, and, and uh, today is one particular topic in it that uh, we don't talk about very often. In fact, we kind of run from it if we can. Uh, today, we are dealing with death, death and the intermediate state, or what happens between um, when we die and when our bodies are raised from the dead. And so we don't, we don't talk about this very often, but in the last couple of weeks, it seems as if we've been sort of surrounded by death. Um, Elizabeth Taylor uh, passed away. Um, this group over here, you have probably no clue who Elizabeth Taylor is, but uh, Elizabeth Taylor passed away. Uh, news came yesterday that Geraldine Ferraro uh, passed away, the uh, 1984 vice presidential candidate with uh, Walter Mondale. Um, passed away yesterday. And then right before that, we had all of these thousands, the news coming, thousands that were killed in Japan with the earthquake and the tsunami. And then just a few days ago, this six-year-old boy that was killed in Spartanburg at Cleveland Park in a train accident. The reality is that we don't talk about death very much, but death is inevitable. Death's all around us. Um, D.A. Carson, who is a, one of the greatest theologians of our time, D.A. Carson said this, that the modern mood is living life as if death were not waiting for us at the end. Living life as if death were not waiting for us at the end. And I think that's pretty well the mood that, uh, that sort of saturates our culture. Um, the mood is, is sort of like, I mean, we joke about it, we do everything we can not to have to deal with it. Uh, anybody ever watch Sanford and Son? A great theological show, Sanford and Son. But anytime Fred Sanford would, anything would come his way that he didn't like, you know, he'd, he'd fake a heart attack and grab his chest and he'd say, Oh, this is the biggest one I've ever had. You hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to you, honey. And he would joke about it. We could run down the line and we could talk about even more modern uh, jokes about death. Any way that we can take our mind off of seriously dealing with it. In fact, I really hated the fact that it was raining and dreary today. Because even in that, God is sovereign in what he does, but even in that, it lends itself to this, this thinking that death is this gloomy experience. And really, it's not. There's a verse in Scripture that, um, that speaks about death. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you never have. But it's probably my favorite verse about death in Scripture. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, Better to spend your time at funerals 
than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. First time I read that, and I came across it in, in Scripture, I was a teenager. And um, my best friend had just died. And um, I was 19 years old, and my best friend had just turned 20. And uh, his name was Daniel, and he and I, I've told many of you this story, but he and I did everything together. We, uh, we worked on car stereos together, and we hung out together. We chased after girls together, and we just did all the things that teenage guys do. And we had both just graduated high school the same year, and we were just living life, both of us living at home. And his parents had gone out of town. They had gone on a camping trip one weekend, and when they came back into town... They found their son um, lying in the bottom of the shower. And the shower's still running. The water, long, cold, when the time, by the time they found him. And I knew everything about Daniel. I'd hung out with him. I knew, knew his favorite foods. I knew his sports teams. I knew his taste in, in girls. I knew his taste in cars. I knew all of this. But then I went to the funeral, and I looked into that casket, and I looked into his body, And I realized there was one thing about Daniel that I didn't know. I didn't know where he was at that moment. You see, because I had shared with him all of my favorite tastes, all of my favorite things, and all of the jokes, and all of just the things of life, except for my faith in Christ. I had never shared with him the gospel. We'd never talked about it. We'd never talked about church. We'd never talked about heaven. We'd never talked about Jesus. And now I was standing over his dead, lifeless body, looking into his face, wondering, where are you right now? And it was after that experience that I came across this verse for the first time. It's better to spend your time at funerals than it is at parties. Because all of us die. So the living should take this to heart. And it hit me that that's, that's what I experienced there at Daniel's funeral. Finally, I was faced with this question of what happens? What happens when someone dies? I mean, I knew it. I knew it about myself, my, my uncle that had died. I, I knew all of it, but I didn't take it to heart about my best friend. Never thought that he would die. And it was through that experience that God led me to ministry. And I surrendered that day. I shared with, I don't think it was the proper timing, but I remember um, standing on the back porch of the funeral home as the coffin was being put into the back of the hearse and taking Daniel's mother by the hand and saying, I just want you to know that I never told your son about the Lord Jesus Christ, but today I've surrendered my life to ministry and I will spend the rest of my life following God where he'll lead me to go. I don't have any idea if it was the right time or not, but I had to tell her. It was better for me to, that day to go to the funeral home than it was to go to another party with Daniel. We'll do anything, though. This, this contemporary culture will do anything other than deal with death or face death or talk about death. We'll talk about everything else, but we don't want to talk about death. And so this morning, I I want to deal with this particular topic, and I don't want you to walk away from here being depressed, gloomy. The weather will do that for you. Today, I want you to walk away from here with hope 
the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's read our text this morning. Beginning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. God, this morning we come to this text and we come to this topic. And this topic is seen in our culture is one that is gloomy and one that should be avoided. But God, I pray that you would speak through me today in such a way that we would change the way we see death. God, that you would call us out of spiritual death and into spiritual life today so that one day that when we physically die, that we will be transported into physical life in eternity with you. Do that in this room, God, I beg you. In Jesus' name, amen. This issue, this text, this topic brings up several questions. And so my sermon uh, this morning doesn't follow a clever outline. I simply came to this text and came up with several questions. So I want to just ask these questions and then answer them together today. First of all, why? Why is there death and why is there suffering? That's the first question that you hear anyone ask when any sort of tragedy comes. Probably the parents of that six-year-old boy probably at some point said, why? All those people in Japan probably said, why? That's what happens when we come to this issue of death and, and suffering. We look at all the suffering in the world. We look at the issues with AIDS that are rampant in Africa and, and, and uh, poverty in India and all these places. And you think to yourself, why? Why is this allowed to go on? Why does this continue to happen? We see this in the very first verse that we read today where he said, even though our bodies are wasting away. And the picture there of wasting away is intentional. 
It is intentional because wasting away is the direct result of sin. There is, and and many of you know this, but I just want to repeat it for you today, and I want us to get this deep down within ourselves. that sometimes there are horrible consequences of personal action that lead to some sort of tragedy. Right now, all in the news and the media and all over the community, everyone wants to point fingers at, was it the inspector? Was it the conductor? Whose fault was it? I would take our attention away from that for just a few minutes and remind you that the very reason that death exists and suffering exists today in our world is because of sin. Death is not natural. It should not be here. Suffering is not natural. You look back to the garden when Adam and Eve were there with God. And there was no death. God would come and walk with them. And they named all the animals. Can you imagine having that responsibility today in a fallen world? Having the animals all come by you and you name them. That would be fine. With a kitty cat and a puppy dog and a possum. and Which, by the way, was in my trash can the other day. And scared me to death that'd be fine with some of these little animals the rabbit that would come by yeah that's a rabbit but you let a bear come walking out and I'm not about to stand there and say hmm what shall I call you a lion walks out a tiger walks out a crocodile comes out What's changed? Genesis 3. Genesis 3 changed because that was in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. But in Genesis 3, they disobeyed. They rebelled against God. They did what they were not supposed to do. Thought that they knew better than God did. And they plunged themselves and all of us into a world of suffering and death. So if you want to blame somebody, blame Adam and Eve. No, I'm just kidding. Look at yourself in the mirror. It's sin. It's what Romans chapter 5 talks about in Romans 5 verse 12 when it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When you look at the train accident at Cleveland Park or the earthquake and tsunami in Japan or the death of the person who is very, very close to you or the coming suffering or the present suffering or the past suffering that you have endured or your mother or father or your husband or wife or your child close to you that they've had to endure, you better mark it down, settle it in your heart that it is a direct result of sin in this world and it's not natural. Romans 6.23 goes on a little further and it says, For the wages of sin is death. It's the payout of sin. And so, you know, while that may not be satisfactory, in the moment of hurting, it is the ultimate answer. Sin and death are in this world because of sin. The suffering and death are in this world because of sin. The second question I came to is, then why do Christians die? 
I understand then why, why there's death in the world. But Romans 8, 1 tells me that for those who are in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation. So why do Christians go on to die? Is it punishment for our sin? Romans 8, 1 tells us that no, it is not. That all of the punishment for sin has been taken out on Christ. That He took all of the wrath of God to pay for the sins of the world. So when Christians die, it is not because there is something left in the wrath of God that needs to be poured out on them. It simply is the fact that we still, as Christians, live in this fallen world. And that that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. When you look at Revelation chapter 20 and 21, it talks about that in the end that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But it's not happened yet. So why then do Christians die if it's not for this punishment for sin? Well, twofold. And it's right here in our text in verses 16 and 17. Number one is that our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And Paul here, as he's talking and writing, he's talking about all of the suffering that he is enduring for the cause of Christ, that he is living for the Lord, that he is following him, and he is persecuted and crushed and abandoned and all these sort of things. Or he's not those sort of things, but he's knocked down and all those things in the previous chapter. God's not abandoned him. He's not allowed him to be completely crushed. But in all of these things, and one day, even in his death, he will be transformed in his inner man to greater and greater degrees of glory. We have gotten things backwards in our world today. We spend all sorts of time and money and energy trying to keep the outward appearance, the outward man, from wasting away. We, we try to transform it to greater degrees of glory. I did a little research on this. There is an entire industry all about this um, transformation of the outer man. Um, plastic surgery in America. You know how much is spent on plastic surgery in America annually? $10 billion. By the way, ladies, 90% of that is from you. Cosmetics in America in an average year, $8 billion. Which, ladies, we're not really complaining on a lot of it, you know? But we spend a whole lot of money and time and energy and effort trying to transform the outer man. The diet industry alone, which would include nutrition and fitness, that industry alone is a $100 billion annual industry in America. Our culture has become wrapped up in itself and looking good on the outside, spending all of this time and money trying to transform the outer man to greater degrees of glory, and all the while virtually ignoring the inward man, oblivious and apathetic to its condition, preferring between the two that it, the inner man wastes away before the outer man does. You think about it. What do we see when we look at each other? We see the outer appearance. I've put on weight lately. You know that. I get a few less hairs up here. You know that. I run into a door in my laundry room and cut my forehead. You know that. 
But if I'm slipping with the Lord, or if I'm just stagnant, I can fake it enough to where you don't necessarily know that. And so can you. We, we care so much more about the outside than we do the inside. And the very thing the scripture tells us here is that even death for the Christian is the final culmination of us being conformed to the image of Christ. That our inner man is finally completely transformed. And so when you look at death for the believer today, I would ask, and you ask the question, why then do Christians die? Don't see it as a negative thing. Embrace it as that thing that finally makes you like the Lord Jesus. Amen? This is a, we have this upside down. Instead, we should adopt the approach of Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. David Garland, who wrote the New American Standard Commentary on 2 Corinthians, in this particular section, says this. He said, as his, talking about Paul, as his outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, his inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. There were those who were looking at Paul and saying, there's no way he could really be a man of God because look at all these things that are happening to him. Look at all the beatings and the shipwreck and the being bit by the, the, the viper and all of these things. There's no way he could truly be a man of God. And Paul said, I'm glad to suffer because in my suffering, I'm sharing in the, in the suffering of Christ. And David Garland points out here that as he became more and more like the crucified Christ, the beaten up, bloodied, bruised Christ, that in his inner man, he became more and more and more like the glorified Christ. That's what's happening as we're heading toward death. So today, look yourself in the mirror when you go home and say, I may not look so good on the outside anymore, but boy, I'm looking better and better every day on the inside. Because that's what's happening if you are a child of Christ. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It is preparing for us this eternal weight of glory that is beyond anything to compare it to. And that's what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, I consider that these things that we have to endure right now, nothing compared to what is coming to us in heaven. So the third question that I would have you look at this morning is, how then should we Christians view our death? And I want to just walk through this text and give you just a few of the words that he uses, Paul uses, to describe how we as believers should view our death. He's very explicit in this. He uses multiple uh, images to help us get it. He calls it light momentary affliction. It's light. It's momentary. It's, it's not anything compared to, he goes on, the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, I know that there are some of you that are going through some things that are really, really, really hard. There is suffering going on in your family with a loved one. Maybe someone is suffering with cancer or Alzheimer's or something else. And it's just awful what it's doing to their body. 
And Paul here says, I know it's awful when you look at it. But if you'll step back and look at it compared to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that we will have, that is coming toward us, that will come to us through death, it is momentary light affliction. He goes on and he says that it is transient, that it is not eternal, that whatever you're going through will eventually lead to your death And if you are a believer, you will then pass from this world to the next to spend eternity with Christ. Then he goes on and he says, it's like striking a tent. That's what he says there in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. When he talks about the tent there being destroyed, he's talking about our body. And the imagery he uses uh, is of striking a tent, taking down a tent. Now, I'm not much of a camper. Um, Give me a building any day. You know, give me me my own bedroom or a motel room, whatever it is, over and above camping any day, Um, particularly a tent. I remember as a kid. Me and my best friend at that time, my next-door neighbor when I was probably 8, 9, 10 years old, was Willie. Me and Willie, always into trouble. But one of the things that me and Willie would do for fun is we'd pitch the tent in, in the backyard and sleep outside. And I never had the heart to tell Willie this, but I never did enjoy that. He thought it was grand and glorious, and I hated every minute of it. I hated waking up with the dew that came through the tent, and I was soaking wet when I woke up, not knowing what was crawling, because, you know, the lights from from the stars or the moon or the street light, you know, they amplify those bugs that are crawling on your tent, you know? Looks like they've been in some radiation or something crawling across my tent. That's the picture here that Paul gives of these earthly bodies. They are like these tents that leak, that are uncomfortable at times, that don't hold up all that well in a storm. But one of these days, the tent will be destroyed, and we will go to a building not made with hands that is eternal. And it's the picture of our glorified bodies one day that will be raised and we will be reunited with. He goes on and he, he talks about he talks about us groaning in these tents. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling, put on our heavenly dwelling. Uh, the picture here of groaning is not, not the groaning of endless, hopeless pain. Um, I spent a lot of time in nursing homes. And one of the things that, uh, that is haunting about sometimes in nursing homes are the groans and the moans from the rooms. And those, I don't know the condition, I don't know the spiritual condition of that person who's letting that out. If they're, if they're lost, those are hopeless groans. The picture here is not of us groaning in pain hopelessly. The picture here is of a woman in labor groaning 
looking forward to the baby being delivered. There's hope in that groan. The baby will be delivered. The pain will end. Life will come. And that's the picture here, he says. We groan because we want to put on this new dwelling. We groan in hope. He goes on and he says, finally being further clothed. Not as if we were groaning so that we would be naked or undressed, he says. That's really a reference to what he believes happens between the death of a believer and the final resurrection of the body reunited with the believer, that there is this sort of disembodied spirit that waits for the body, and they are in one sense naked, he calls them. But he says we're not groaning for that. We don't want that. What we want is for this day to come when our bodies will be resurrected and we will be further dressed. (laughs) The image I got of this was... uh, was one of hospital gowns. Who invented hospital gowns? I have a theory. I think it was the insurance companies. I don't think they'd pay for any more fabric. Hospital gowns are just uncomfortable. They're open in the back. You can't get up and walk around. They say, oh, you should get up and you should walk through the halls. You say, no, no, I shouldn't walk through the halls. And the whole time you're longing to put on real clothes. Can't wait to get out of this hospital gown and put on real clothes. And that's the picture here. Is that this body that we are in is almost like a hospital gown that sometimes leaves us open and exposed. But there's coming a day when we're going to put on real clothes. Amen? That we would finally be further clothed then how should we as Christians view our death? We should view our death as light, momentary affliction, as transient, as striking a tent with eager groaning so that we would be further clothed. Another question I came up with is, well then, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that one of these days that we're going to pass through death and it's going to work out for our good, that it's simply going to be transient and putting on further clothes, this eternal body. How can we be sure? Well, Paul answers that in verse 5. In verse 5, he writes, He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. There's no one more trustworthy than God. And just to be certain, He has put His own Spirit within us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He has also given to us. So it stands to reason that if He raised Jesus from the dead by that Spirit and then gave us that same Spirit, it only stands to reason that He would also raise us from the dead. And all of this is tied up in His character. If you look back a few verses, back in chapter 4 and verse 14... He says, Paul's confident of this. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The Holy Spirit here is the guarantee, meaning he is the down payment. He is the earnest, which means that he will show up at the closing. Another question that I came up with 
in looking at this issue of death in this particular text was, well, then how should we live? If we're confident of this thing, that it's going to be light and momentary and transient, it's only going to lead to this better eternal life, this better existence with Christ, then how should we live? The very first part of verse 6, he says, So we are of good courage. We are always of good courage. Paul understood that it was better to die because he was obeying God than to live because he was disobeying God. If anybody had a reason to pack it in so that he could prolong his life, it was Paul. I mean, it could have reached, Paul could have reached a point where he said, that's it, I've done, I've done my share. I mean, hey, I've already written, I mean, he wound up writing 13. What if he'd have packed it in and said, you know, I've written like eight books that are, you know, going in the Bible. I mean, that's, that's surely good enough. If anybody ever, and this is my imagination here, but if anybody ever had reason to pack it in and say, no more suffering, I'm tired. I'm I'm tired. I've been at the brink of death multiple times. No more, God. No more. If anybody had reason to do that, it was Paul. But Paul here says, we are always of good confidence. They can throw stones at me. They can crucify me. They can cast me in the sea. They can do whatever they want to do to me. Because I'm confident that they can't touch my soul. That death is not the end for me. Why fear the one who can kill the body but can't kill the soul? Why not rather fear the one who could destroy both? And he had his priorities right. In the previous chapter in verses 7 through 10 in chapter 4, he writes, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. How should we live? We should live like Paul lived and say, they can't do anything to me. You hear me? The world can't touch you. I'm confident of that. No one can touch me. Because I know where I'm going. Oh, you can touch this life and you can take this life out. But you cannot quench the Spirit. You cannot take, you cannot take spiritual life from me and you can't take the fact that one day my body will be raised up from the ground. And be reunited with my soul in heaven forever. You hear me? When you get that way, come what may, live confidently. 
The last question that I'll ask this morning is this. And this is probably the one that we deal with more than anything when it comes to death. Well, then how should we mourn? How should we mourn when it comes to the loss of a loved one? When a loved one dies, how should I mourn? Well, there's two answers to that because there's two situations that the person who's died could be found in. One, if the, if the person who's died is a believer, then your mourning will be sad because they have been taken away from you, but it will also be mixed with joy because they are now with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he says here in verses 6 through 8. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul here is teaching the fact that when a believer dies, when a Christian dies... They leave the body and they go immediately to be with the Lord. The best example in Scripture is the thief on the cross when Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. There's no notion in Scripture of purgatory or of soul sleep. How should we mourn when a loved one who is a believer dies? We should realize, like Paul, that This is a preferable thing. It's a wonderful thing as a pastor to go and preach funerals where the person was a believer. Because inevitably the person, the family members will say, they're much better off. You know, they were sick for so long and I just didn't want to see them suffer anymore. And they're so much better off. They're with the Lord right now. It's a wonderful thing, and it is true. It is a preferable thing. That's what Paul says here is we would prefer, we would rather be away from the body and with the Lord. But in another section he goes on and he says, but it's better for you that we stay here. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Psalm 23 verse 4 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Death is not something to be feared for the Christian. Psalm 56, 13, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of those scriptures should cause us, when we lose a loved one who is a believer, to mourn grief mixed with joy. It's what Paul goes on and he talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. We don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Because when a loved one dies who is a believer, we can confidently say they are much better off than I am. And I would never in a million world, a million years want to ask them to come back to me. 
Now, that doesn't take the hurt away. It's going to hurt because you've developed a relationship with that person and you loved them. You loved being with them and you won't be with them on this earth anymore. But for those of us who are in Christ, I'm not sure that it would be the focus of our arrival in heaven. But the reality is that we would be reunited with them when we, when we die. I think the focus when we get there is going to be on Christ. But the reality is is that we would be reunited with them. So how should we mourn? You mourn in such a way that you miss the person, you love the person, you express that, you cry, you do all of those things, but you do it with hope, confident assurance that they are with Christ, finally seeing Him in all of His glory. Fully aware. So how should you then mourn the death of a non-believer? The hardest funeral I've ever done. And it's, it's nothing compared probably to some that have performed funerals. But it was actually the first funeral that I ever preached. I was in seminary at the time. And uh, there was a family in our church. Their sons were in the youth group. And uh, the, mo- the mother's brother lived in California, passed away. No church. No faith, no evidence of anything spiritual in his life. They didn't know anybody. They were brand new to the church, and they asked me if I would preach his funeral. Stand at a funeral, and and the thing you want to do is you want to look at the family, and you want to give them hope. You want to be able to say to them that your brother is in a much better place. Your brother's pain-free now. Your brother is without tears now. You want to be able to say all of those things But in my very first funeral, I couldn't. All I knew about this man was that he loved to fish. He loved to go out on his boat, uh, out on the ocean, and he loved to fish. So all I could do was talk in these vague generalities about the fisher of men. Now Jesus loved to fish as well. Jesus called fishermen to himself, and I gave a gospel plea that day. And I didn't give false hope, but I didn't bash their hopes either. I didn't bash their spirits either. The worst thing, the most unforgivable thing for me to do today would be to give you false hope. If you are here today and you are lost, you've never placed your, your, personal, your personal trust in Christ Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is coming a day of judgment. I've got to tell you that. I've got to give you warning. I cannot give you false hope. Matthew 13, verses 49 through 50 says, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The reality is here, if you die without a relationship with Christ, that's where you're going. Jesus spoke of hell as a place where the fires never end and the worm never stops eating. Who would I be if I 
hid that from you and removed that truth from you. If Jesus wanted you to know it, then shouldn't I stand and tell you that truth? And the reality is, you can't do anything about a loved one who has already gone on, regardless of their condition. The only thing that you can do anything about is heed the warning today. Hear the gospel call. To hear what God says in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 32 when he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. He doesn't say, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so, you know, I'm just going to do away with death. That would be unjust. He doesn't say, I don't take any pleasure in this, so I'm going to do away with hell. Instead, his justice, his righteousness will not let him go there. It causes him to hold justice high, but it also causes him to reach out with a hand of grace and say, you don't deserve this, but turn and live. Turn from your sins. Place your faith completely in Jesus Christ as your only hope and live. Death for the believer is momentary, light affliction. It is transient. It is us passing on to be further dressed. It is beautiful imagery. I want you to come back tonight. I want to give you some more imagery of it. But that's not the picture that you have of one who dies without Christ. It is not transient. The one who dies without Christ, it is eternal death. The one who dies without Christ, it is not momentary light affliction. It will be eternal heavy torment. And you need desperately to hear that today. Will you be ready for death? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy topic today. But God, we can so confidently say that it is not a... It is not a topic without hope. Because God, for those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, death is not anything to be feared. You have drawn us to yourself. You have caused us to be born again. We have turned away from our sin. We have placed our faith completely in you to save us, to make us right before you to give us the righteousness of Christ. You've adopted us into your family. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. You've filled us with your Spirit. One day you will take us through the doorway of death into glory. God, that is a beautiful gift of which we can take no credit 
Our only boast is in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Thank you for crushing Him for us. Thank you for raising Him to conquer death and hell and the grave once for all. God, I pray that in this room this morning, all across this place, in the hearts, the minds of people, God, that you would call them to yourself. Lord, not all of us in here are saved. God, I pray that you would call individuals to yourself today, that they would be born again and converted today. That today they would be saved and know it. God, for those of us who are still here, who already know you are our Savior and our Lord, God, thank you. God, I pray that you would have your way this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.